You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Sure. No, I, I think an important thing to consider is that, you know, we often think about cancer as just the sort of accumulation of mutations throughout our lifetime. And, and that certainly plays a role. But if we really think about cancer as an evolutionary process, then I think that one needs to take a more sort of holistic perspective and think about, you know, the environment. And, and the analogy I like to, to really think about is if you think about what causes crime, you know, your first thought is, well, it's criminals. And certainly criminals play a role. But if you really wanted to solve crime in a city, you would have to go much deeper than that. And you'd have to sort of think about the sort of the underlying conditions that foster crime, you know, the socioeconomic factors and so forth. And so you would really look at the whole environment. And that's going to have a, a, a much more long-term impact on reducing crime. And so I think if we take that same sort of holistic perspective for cancer, I think in the long run, we're going to have much more success in controlling it. You might remember way back to our very first podcast episode, we talked to Dr. Nicole Earhart about the hallmarks of aging, these cellular and molecular processes that happen in the body and drive the aging process. Well, seven of the nine hallmarks of aging are shared with cancer. These shared qualities beg the question, what is the relationship between cancer and aging? What turns a cell into a cancerous cell versus your typical aging cell? So we brought on Dr. James DeGregori, a professor in the University of Colorado School of Medicine who holds the Courtney C. and Lucy Patton Davis Endowed Chair in Lung Cancer Research. Dr. DeGregori's research has coined the theory of adaptive oncogenesis, which views cancer through the lens of evolution. In Darwinian evolution, organisms that are better adapted to their environment tend to survive and produce more offspring than organisms that aren't fit to the environment. Dr. DeGregori proposes that cancer is much the same. Normal healthy cells have adapted to normal healthy environments, but young healthy tissues don't last forever because of aging and other exposures like cigarette smoking or UV damage. So then, damaged environments lead to damaged cells, which can promote cancer. This episode explores adaptive oncogenesis more in depth to answer the question, if we slow down aging, do we also slow down rates of cancer? I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So first things first, thank you so much for agreeing to come on our show and talking to me today. I really am looking forward to our conversation. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So can you review some of those more holistic approaches that you're thinking about? Sure. So again, let's step back millions of years. And so if we think about 
evolution, what's driven the diversity of species on this earth. And we and, and we look over time, we see that there there, you know, speciation isn't sort of a continuous, gradual process. It happens in, in, in fits and spurts. And typically these these massive, you know, uh, changes in the in the species on our planet have followed major environmental changes. And that's, you know, you know, for example, everyone knows about the meteor that hit off the hit off the Yucatan 65 million years ago, how that led to the demise of the dinosaurs. But it also opened up opportunities for, you know, mammals and many other types of species to diversify and fill niches. Basically, there were species that were adapting to this new environment. And, you know, thanks to that meteor, we're having this conversation today. Um, and so if we think about evolution as being driven by environmental change, and that it's, it's that sort of the new demands of the environment that drive specific adaptions, we can re really reconsider cancer in that light. And so the ideas that we've been developing for pretty much about 20 years now really have two core principles. The first one isn't so much why we get cancer, but why we're so good at not getting cancer for about half of a century. So you, your body has trillions of cells and those cells have to maintain themselves for, you know, up to a century, you know, without basically failing, which is an amazing feat, you know, that we can go 50 years with a relative, relatively low failure rate. And so we look at that in terms of, of, of the quality control mechanisms that evolution has put into place. And one of the sort of simple principles I'll bring up is that normal favors normal. So within a normal tissue, the normal cell, the sort of evolved phenotype of a cell is the favored one. So even if you get a mutation that might otherwise cause a cancer, it's unlikely to be advantageous. It'll basically be eliminated from the pool. And at the same time, you're also eliminating cells that are poorly functional. And this helps maintain our tissues. So we maintain youthfulness for a good half of a century, but then we do go downhill or we do things like we smoke cigarettes or we drink too much or we don't have a good diet or we don't exercise. And this facilitates this downward decline of our, our tissues. So I'm not saying that it's everything's inevitable. It's inevitable eventually, but we can do something about sort of the, the pace and extent of this decline by our activities. But when we go downhill, then we, we basically uh, have our tissues that are themselves changing. So our tissues no longer maintain that youthfulness. And so now you can think about this as sort of like the earth after the, you know, the, the earth after that meteor hit off the Yucatan in the sense that the environment in our tissues is no longer the same as it was when we were young. And the ability of these tissues to prevent the expansion of a cell that might have a cancer causing mutation is now reduced. It's not an absolute cutoff where we have no ability to prevent cancer, but we are no longer as robust as before in preventing cancer, nor are we as robust as preventing all the other manifestations of aging, um, from heart disease to, you know, death by infections, you know, including from COVID. So as we go downhill, we, we lose that defense against many different aspects of disease. Right. And, and so you know, cancer is considered one of these age-related diseases, which takes us back to, you know, we had an episode way back when it was a, our very first episode about the hallmarks of aging. Yes. So I wonder if we can, you know, review what those hallmarks are, because this is what you're talking about when you say, you know, we're going downhill. It's these right. hallmarks of aging that are starting to accumulate. Yeah. What's, what's interesting about many of the hallmarks is for many of them, 
they they increase linearly throughout our lives, including, for example, DNA mutations and disruptions of our of our genomes. Um, you know, sort of poor. You know, the the sort of accumulation of misfolded proteins and other things like that. So damage accumulates linearly, but we don't decline linearly. We really we seem to have a certain level of resiliency within our body that delays that decline until really the second half of a century. You know, probably really realistically starts, you know, when we about hit 40, but we don't just start going downhill, we pick up speed. So it's at the start, it's a relatively slow decline. But by the time you're 60, now that starts to accelerate. And and so we we buffered to some extent against this damage. And again, I think it's in part because youthful tissues favor youthful cells. And so a cell that gets a damage can just be eliminated. If it gets a mutation that disrupts its function, it's just kicked out of there. Whether it's it's you know going to be a potential cancer or just be a poorly functional cell. And so that quality control is so important. Um, and so many of these hallmarks, you know, like telomer shortening, which is again linear through our lifetimes, are they may be linear, but their consequences are not linear. And of course, if we step back and we take the 10,000 foot perspective, there's a simple reason for that is because natural selection favored our maintenance of our robustness through the years where we were likely to be reproductively successful. And, you know, if you look back in, you know, ancient times, you know, even back just thousands of years, humans rarely lived past 50. So you can imagine if, if there was an investment in maintaining our bodies past the age of 50, that that would have been an investment that was would have been relatively wasteful. And it would have been better to spend that investment in, in robustness in youth to make sure that you can, you know, have babies, you can protect those babies, you can get food, you can avoid predation. And so it's all a relative, a matter of relative investments. And we have to sort of take that into account when we think about why we age. There's no program to get rid of us. It's really the absence of a program to maintain us forever because such a program would have been wasteful. Right. Absolutely. So can you maybe tell us what makes a cell turn into just, you know, an overactive cancerous cell versus a cell that just is old and just starts accumulating all of these, you know, aging inflammatory factors? How does that, where does that difference happen? Yeah. Well, they're, they're definitely related. So as our tissues age, we accumulate more cells that we would refer to as senescence. Now, these senescent cells are basically permanently exited from the cell cycle. They don't divide anymore, but they also, you know, can be actually damaging to our tissues because they can produce inflammatory cytokines. So you might think, well, why do we have such a program? And the reason we do is because when we're young and even during development, these same cells are playing a critical role. So when you, for example, get a wound, you, some of the cells will, will undergo senescence and that induction of that, those inflammatory cytokines helps recruit the cells like macrophages that help repair the wound. So that same process that, that comes out back and causes us trouble in old age is actually important for essential functions in youth like wound healing. And, and so the, you know, these, this aging cells, you can also look at it from the perspective as, as the cells within a tissue start aging when your, your, your tissue no longer has that ability to evict the poorly functioning cell, the more old cells you accumulate, the harder it is to evict the next cell because the, the, 
the competition's gone down. And that can include a cell that might have a cancerous mutation. So it's sort of like, you know, I'm a basketball player. So if I go out and play basketball and if I chose to play with a bunch of 18 year olds, I'm going to get my, my butt whooped, right? I'm not going to be a very good basketball player. But if I actually find a group of 80 year olds to play basketball with, I'm going to look awesome. Now, my abilities have not changed, but it's who my competition is. And, and so that same thing can happen in our tissue as that sort of the competitive level of the peer cells goes downhill. It's much easier for uh, an oncogenic cell to be adaptive and to thrive in that in that environment, in part because it's actually adaptive to this new sort of, you know, uh, aged environment. And at the same time, because it has weak competition around it. Right. So. I think we're getting into like the nitty gritty of, of these terms of what happens at a bio, biological level when cancer happens. So I wonder if you can explain that on a very basic level, what makes a cell cancerous? Yeah. How does that happen? Well, first you, you need to have changes that are basically heritable by the cell. So we know, you know, heritable in the sense that, you know, my kid is going to have half my genes, right? Well, cells also basically have progeny. And those cells can then, you know, carry genetic changes that happen in the parent cell. So if a cell gets a mutation that promotes cancerous phenotypes, then the real question is, is that it are the progeny of that cell going to have an advantage within their environment? And as we just talked about, you know, maybe within an aged environment, some of these mutations can become advantageous or maybe in the lungs of a smoker, for example, would be another example, which is a very perturbed environment. And so if that's the case, then now when that cell divides, its progeny are more likely to survive the neighboring progeny. And it's going to eventually form a clone, an expanded clone, which could have millions of cells. But cancer often typically requires multiple mutations. And so the next mutation is if, if that clone has gone from one cell to a million cells, it's increased the likelihood of the next mutation one million fold. Simple math, right? More cells to get that next mutation and so forth. And so what really determines whether you can accumulate these multiple mutations in the same clone is the extent to which each of those mutations confers an advantage to the clone and allows for an expansion. And what I've been telling you is that the extent to which that mutation causes the advantage is it's self-dependent on the microenvironment and on competing cells as it determines the relative fitness advantage for that cell. And so as this clone expands, it's acquiring new properties in response to its environment, but as it adapts to its environment, it might become more malignant. It might become a cancer. And I'm using the word might because we know within our bodies, this is happening millions of times in each of us throughout our lifespan. And yet, you know, most of us, 60% of us will never get a cancer, at least not one that takes us to the doctor. And even those of us that do get a cancer, it's delayed till old age and it's going to happen one time. One of those many millions of events is actually going to be successful. And so what that tells you is that the body is very good at keeping this from happening, preventing it from happening. And often we focus on the one successful clone, the cancer. But what we need to keep in mind is all of those hurdles that all those other, you know, potential cancers failed to overcome in getting to a cancer. 
Um, and I'll mention one other thing real quickly is that when I say mutation, I, you know, we're, we, we're referring to often changes to our DNA, whether a small change or really big change, like, you know, you could even massive changes where large parts of chromosomes are involved. But other things that can contribute to cancer include what we call epigenetic changes, which is meaning at a level above the genes. And that's where you get modifications of the genes or how they are controlled that can also be passed down without actually changing the code. And, and so I just want to put that in there and that it's not just the genetic changes. Yes. So, so I know when you and I had our pre-podcast call, I, I gave you this, this conclusion, this observation that aging and cancer are two sides of the same coin because they arise from this DNA damage that we're talking about. And I remember you thought that was a little too simplistic of a way to describe it. So yeah. I wonder if you could explain again why aging and cancer, thinking of it as that way of two sides of the same coin is not, is not the whole picture. Yeah. Well, I would say they're definitely intricately linked. And the first link is, again, from that 10,000 foot perspective is, you know, why do we get heart disease in old age? Why do we get kidney failure? Why are we more likely to die of an infection? Why are we more likely to get cancer? And if you graphed out these incidence curves, they're amazingly concordant. They go up exponentially, you know, often starting after the age of 50. And that's not accidental. Again, it's because natural selection basically acted to prevent all that bad stuff from happening through years of likely reproductive success. And for humans, I'll mention, reproductive success does not end when you have your baby. It ends when that baby reaches an age such as probably, you know, somewhere into its early teens where it could survive on its own should its parent die. So that's why it extends to an age such as 50. By 50, you were probably a grandparent many, you know, thousands of years ago. So so that's the 10,000 foot reason, reason, but they're also intricately linked by the same reason in that as tissues decline, you know, and as we get the systemic decline, it leads to multiple failure points. So just to give one example, we know that our immune system changes as we age and our ability to, to mount new responses to a new pathogen like COVID declines. And this is why the elderly have much worse outcomes from infections, including for COVID. But at the same time, that decline and that change in your immune system, where it becomes more inflammatory and less responsive to new threats, can also lead to the promotion of diseases like cancer. It could be lead to promotion of heart disease. So a lot of these different diseases from cancer through other diseases of aging have common causes that can be at the root of these, of these diseases. Um, you know, and at the same time, there is a role for mutation accumulation and the mutations are accumulating not just in, you know, cells that might become cancer, but also they're disrupting function as we move forward. So in that sense, the two sides of the same coin isn't entirely wrong. It's just incomplete. And I think we need to, to take that larger perspective and look at the commonalities as well as the differences between how these diseases, you know, basically come about. Right. So the commonalities, perfect, you know, direction for where we're going. Um, these hallmarks of aging that we're talking about, seven of the nine hallmarks of aging are shared with cancer, yeah. meaning, meaning that the processes that lead to aging also seven of them lead to cancer. So can you, can you talk a little bit about what those are? Sure. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, 
because in some ways they are very connected. And it's not simply that, you know, for example, with aging, often the cells become less able to divide and less able to, you know, reconstitute the tissue, reduce stem cell activity. But with the cancer, your your their 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 ultimate root is that those changes are happening within the tissue. But often the cancer will end up having the opposite phenotype. It'll divide more. It will now maintain its telomeres. And it will, you know, uh, basically overcome some of those aging problems. And so, and of course, that's the reason why the cancer was selected in the first place. You know, if you treat bacteria with an antibiotic, you select for the bacteria that are resistant to the antibiotic. So if all your other cells are going downhill because their telomeres are shortening, then the cell that turns on telomerase to make their own telomeres longer is going to have an edge over all those other cells. While it might not have had an edge if those other cells had been young and still had long enough telomeres. So when everyone else goes down, it makes it easier for you to thrive and be better. Again, the basketball analogy, right? I'm going to look really good if I'm playing octogenarians. Um, and, and so you know, and some of these other hallmarks like, you know, DNA damage are connected in that either DNA damage can reduce functionality in a cell or it could lead to hyperfunctionality that might lead to a cancer. And so that's certainly where it's the same root cause, but with opposite consequences. Um, some of the other uh, uh, hallmarks include, for example, inflammation. And we've talked about how inflammation can be at the root of heart disease but also can be a very much of a promotional factor for cancer because the cancer can not only, you know, evolve resistance to some of the inhibitory effects of inflammation, but can actually evolve to leverage inflammation to benefit its own progression. So you're leading me to this very natural progression of something we talk about at the center often, which is the geroscience hypothesis, this idea that if we thought about aging as a disease, then maybe we can therapeutically target a lot of these, you know, multiple of these chronic conditions at once if we just thought of aging as itself as a disease. So my question from that is if we slow down aging, you know, there's a lot of research behind that. If we try to slow down the aging process, do we also slow down rates of cancer then? Yeah. And experimentally, that's been almost every manipulation that slows down aging with a few exceptions also reduces and delays cancer incidence because I do think they're intricately linked. And so I, I think there's a lot of lot to the geroscience hypothesis, although I, I, I'm a little hesitant to cause aging a disease because it's basically just part of, of our sort of naturally evolved, you know, sort of programs to not the program to age, but the program for maintenance. So we age because of the extent that natural selection was willing to invest in us. And I scan, I shouldn't be using words like willing because natural selection is completely blind and it's not looking towards the future, but it's, we received enough investment to maximize our reproductive success. So I think it's gonna always be very hard to fight that evolutionary pressure. So to restore programs of youthfulness, but. So I'm, I'm, I'm more of a believer that we should be working more towards um, extending the health span more than extending the lifespan. And I actually think that's a much more realistic goal. If we could get all of us to live to, you know, 90, 95 years old and, you know, we, we play tennis on our 95th birthday, we go home, go to sleep and don't wake up in the morning. 
I think that would all be an outcome that we'd be, you know, you know, happy with in the sense that what we don't want is to live, you know, our golden years in, you know, basically, you know, a, a situation where we're not healthy. We need continuous care. Our, our, you know, our minds are going away and so forth. And so the idea would be to sort of extend that health span. And I think if we extend the health span, it is going to have effects across all diseases, including cancer. It will reduce them all. In fact, if you think about everything that your mother and grandmother told you to do to keep healthy, all of them reduce the incidence of multiple diseases of aging, heart disease, cancer, et cetera. So that's, you know, good diet, don't smoke, you know, exercise, get enough sleep, you name it. Uh, for most of those, I'm not so sure about the get enough sleep part, but for the other ones, they've clearly been shown to reduce both cancer and extend lifespan. Can you talk a little bit about some of the therapies that maybe you're studying or just generally scientists are studying to extend health span to kind of slow down this aging yeah. process? Yeah, no. One of the therapies is something I did yesterday, which is go for a nice long run. Um, so right now, I think people should be very wary of anything that's a quick fix, a pill. So the first thing we have to recognize is that biology is complex. You know, and so if someone tells you that taking this one thing is going to make you live longer, you should be very suspect. And and I think we're a long ways from that. But we do know that, you know, diet, exercise, not smoking, you know, avoiding exposures that you don't need to get. Those are proven to extend lifespan. And, you know, you're going to live a higher quality life at the same time. So I would say people should be investing in that. I know there are studies out there where, for example, people are reducing using a compound called rapamycin, which indeed extends lifespan in mice, no question about it. But those are mice in sterile cages in our labs. And we have to be very careful with this because that same pathway whose hyperactivity can contribute to aging, we know that pathway is also, also involved in immune function. And so in the real world, it may not be such a good idea to be on such a thing. So you may have the potential to live longer, but if you die from an infection, it's you know, you, you basically, you, you've lost any benefit. And of course, at a population level, we could discover such side effects. And, and so almost everything in life has a trade-off. And so I think you have to consider such trade-offs when coming up with sort of age-extending uh, interventions. Yes, we've heard time and time again on our podcast about how mice are just not the greatest models because they are in that sterile environment. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I wonder if you can tell us a, a little bit, how does your work in your lab and your research relate to this topic? Yeah. So what we're trying to understand is, you know, why is it that a cell, for example, that, that gets that first oncogenic mutation, that first cancer-causing mutation, why does it have an advantage in an aged environment but not meaning an aged tissue versus a young tissue. And we've, we've discovered a number of mechanisms where this is the case. And we could show that, you know, in a, in a young tissue, that mutation doesn't appear to provide an advantage to the cell. Um, and we think it probably also even provides a disadvantage to the cell. And so we think that is the case because, again, we, you know, natural selection over a million of years has favored stem cells and progenitor cells where many cancers arise that are already well adapted to their niche. And if you're well adapted, change is gonna almost be bad. But as you get old and your tissues go downhill, we under, we're trying to understand, well, what is it 
about the tissue that's going downhill. And we've shown that it's everything from what we call the extracellular matrix, which is all the proteins and, and stuff that cells are stuck to within this you know, tissue environment. That changes dramatically as we get old. We know that within the cell, signaling pathways change such that the cell is no longer communicating with its environment in the same manner that it used to. And we also see that cells often have a, a greater propensity to what we call differentiate, which means become more mature cells, more functional cells, and they're less good at maintaining that stem cell compartment. And from, from these studies, we've then shown that these mutations that we show expand out, the cells that have them expand out preferentially in the aged environment, do so because they're providing a solution for those problems. They're overcoming the problem. And so then you can understand, well, that's why that mutation wasn't adaptive and advantageous in the young tissue because they didn't need more of that activity. They were doing just fine. But in the old environment where things aren't so good, those new activities can become adaptive and uh, allow for this competitive expansion to happen, which then again sets, the, sets this clone on this course where it might become a cancer. And again, that's a big might. Because we've done calculations where any given individual over about 60 has about 100 billion cells, at least, with cancer-causing mutations. 100 billion. And yet, the vast, vast majority of those, all but potentially one, are not going to become a cancer. And so one of the things we really would like to understand is, and we're actively studying, is first off, how do those, and I don't want to spell it out, but that 99 plus billion cells not become cancers? What is preventing them? What is keeping them, you know, you know, as part of the tissue and not as part of a cancer? And at the same time, you know, what is the effect of all those cells on our tissue? You know, we often think about cancer and aging as two separate outcomes. But what about if these cells that are expanding out that have these potentially cancer-causing mutations, if our biggest concern shouldn't be the cancer, but the fact that these mutations are no longer as functional? as they once were. So, you know, if you have a tissue that now becomes occupied by a large number of cells with cancer-causing mutations, maybe those just aren't as functional anymore. Maybe they're not, you know, maybe they make for a gut that's not as good at taking up food or preventing bacterial influx into your body. And, you know, within our immune system, we know that there is these expansions and these expansions are not just potentially going to cause leukemia, but again, they're not as functional and they actually can have perturbed functions. And so we need to stop thinking about these as separate outcomes of aging, but maybe there's really some commonalities and they actually have common causes that are that initiate from these actually expanding clones within our body. Last question that I ask everybody who comes on the show, and I'm sure you've probably probably looped this into some of your other answers you've given, which is what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your per perspective and what you study? Yeah, I, I think what makes me most excited is I think people coming around to this idea that it's not simple and that there's a lot of interconnections uh, between these different processes. And I think, you know, because before it was, you know, even with both aging and cancer, people really had this simplistic notation it's, uh, uh, that it's just the accumulation of mutations. And of course, those play a role, 
but they're one player. And, you know, if that was it, then, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. I mean, except for not smoking or, you know, avoiding mutagens, we are going to accumulate mutations as we get older. And so that was sort of a, a depressing idea. But I think as we've come to understand that it's more complex and, you know, that there's all these interactions between these different systems, we could start to, I think, better appreciate mechanisms where we might be able to intervene and we might be able to slow this process or like we talked about, at least extend out the health span. Um, so I think that's, I think, very exciting. And I think another thing that I think we're going to really need to consider is the equity issue. I think if we were just to come up with a, a pill that someone could take that's going to extend their lifespan and that pill cost $100,000, you know, that's going to mean, you know, Jeff Bezos and a few other people are going to be able to take the pill and live longer. And that's not fair and equitable. So the better we understand these processes and the better we understand how diet, exercise, and, you know, for example, with diet, there may be that there are specific diets that are good at extending lifespan. I mean, right now, I'd say the simplest advice is eat a balanced diet with lots of fruits and vegetables. Beyond that is just the details. But let's say that we find that having a cup of blueberries once a week actually does extend lifespan and so forth. That might be something that's more accessible to a broader community. And maybe blueberries is a bad idea because actually for much of the world, they probably could not get blueberries. But anyway, I think you see where I'm going with this is that we're hopefully going to come up with a solution that's not only going to address this complexity, but also could be more widely distributed. Yeah, it's almost like you don't need the magic pill. We have we have the tools that we know work. Yes. <laughs> if we would only just incorporate exercise, diet, and things like that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, James, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. I felt like I was back in my undergraduate lecture hall <laughs> learning about cancer all over again. <laughs> oh, good. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.